Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Malk. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we're having a very, very informal, casual conversation about frequently asked questions for making your course. Yeah, so full disclosure, these questions are things we've seen on Twitter. So frequently asked questions from Twitter. And some are sort of general course prep, cross-discipline. Some are more particular. We're kind of just doing pull them out of a hat approach uh, and spitballing. And these questions always come up when you are on the brink of a new semester. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I feel like you start contemplating, like, you know, how long should this take me? Or do I have enough information about the absence policy or like whatever, right? Um, Can I actually pull this course off? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that moment of panic. Oh, did I do this right? And the new semester always sneaks up on everyone unless you have a very specific urgent reason that you need to prepare ahead of time. I think maybe I can have count the number of times I've seen or heard someone say like, I'm all ready for the new semester. Nothing left to do. It's mostly like, ah! (laughs) But also, if you're one of those people, I may be suspicious of you. (laughs) Because there are times when I have put things together and I'm like, yes, I'm ready. And then I go back through and I'm like, oh, this could be better. This could be better. I'm going to change this and change this. Um, So... I think I'm a little bit suspicious if you're like, oh, everything's together and ready. Though full disclosure, that was me this semester, but that's because I'm teaching five classes. And I was like, I need them all up online. So I can be ready. That that urgent pressing question. Yeah. Um, though I would also say to Paige's point, I do know that there's things that could be done better. I'm already thinking like, man, I wish I included that resource. Um, that would have been really helpful. Um, specifically the one I'm thinking about today that I wish I had included was the link to the Microsoft uh, office package that the school has available free to the students because students are always unaware. They don't have to buy Microsoft as a student. They can download it for free while they're at school. Yeah. Um, And so I meant to include that in my list of resources this semester and forgot. So we'll have to get that added to it ASAP. That is one thing that they, students across the board don't know about. Yeah. And there's just so many resources in general that students aren't aware of. So maybe that's the place where we can start of like, I don't know if that's a frequently asked question, but just sort of Paige, what sort of resources do you like to provide for your students at the start of a semester? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I, it's tedious, but I always go through, um, the course website with them so they can see like on the screen how to navigate to wherever they need to go um and and because I think I I have assumed in the past that it's intuitive and it's not always um I put the course together so it feels intuitive to me but to an outsider you know they don't know where to find it and I think um that's one thing I do. I also, at the beginning of the semester, kind of go on a little bit of a like entertaining spiel about planners, especially 
in freshman classes where you need a weekly plan and you should buy a planner or you should use your Google calendar or like whatever, because you're going to have, you know, several classes, several sets of assignment due dates, and you need to have that in a central location. And I don't, I've never loved like Blackboard's calendar or Canvas's calendar. Like I don't like to see things necessarily on the computer screen. Like I can, it's more tangible if it's written in a planner. So that's the thing I talked to them about. Um, I talked to them at the beginning of the semester also about like self-advocacy, right? Like if you have to advocate for yourself um, and here are the list of resources that I know that are available on campus, right? Here's the tutoring center. Um, here's like resources to mental health um, or like mental health resources. And we don't have a lot on our campus because it's small, but I try to give them some that are in the like community as well. But I tell them like my list of resources for you are, is, is not exhaustive. Um, and so you have to figure out what you need, who you need to talk to, to get that. Um, and so like, I, I encourage them to work, to be transparent with their professors about uh, at the beginning of the semester about whatever's going on, whatever they need help with, whatever they have questions with or about. I do some tech um, resources, like how to use Google Docs, because mm -hmm. I use Google Docs a lot. Yeah, I'm trying to think, is there anything else? I don't think so. I think that's pretty, that's pretty much it, at a bit, like in terms of beginning of the semester resources. Yeah, I think that's pretty thorough. Normally I give mental health resources like slightly before midway point when I feel like students are a little bit more stressed and, and open to it. That's but, a good idea. Yeah, I do I do it as like part of a less not lesson, but I, I block out time where we talk about it a little bit. But this semester, just with everything going on, I just had it built in from the start. Um we didn't um, talk about it, but it, it's available. And then I'm going to touch on it again with them a little bit later on. Um, something I'm trying out as well this semester is I've made a space and I've told them about it in our um, course manager system um, called additional resources. And I told them this is just going to be where all the opportunities that I receive go. So any sort of like scholarship opportunity, job opening, publishing, you know, call for papers for student papers. I'm just going to put it in, in there. And I told them I'm literally just going to put every single one. Not all of them are going to apply to every student, but they should just keep checking it out every once in a while and see if they're interested in any. Um, because when I get those emails, I'm like, I don't really know which of my students this would apply to and, and wasn't ever sure how to disseminate it. And I just decided to try it this way this semester. Um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. And then I just feel, I don't know, just a, a kind of other place. I also kind of, this is more technical specific, but I also have provided them with instructions for how to forward their learning manager system email to their student email account. Mm -hmm. 
because last year I had multiple, multiple students who would email me through the course. I would reply and they would be waiting for the reply from their student email, which is separate. Um, so just sort of like things about how to navigate that because I think from the instructor side, we get used to these systems. It's kind of like what you were saying, like if you design your course, you know how it works. If you've been using the system for more than a year, you know how to navigate it and it just becomes like, oh yeah, that's how that works. But if you're teaching freshmen, this is all brand new to them and nobody's really walking them through it in my experience. Like once you make the hack for them, you can just then use that same hack every semester. So I was actually uploading like the how to forge your email from, I made a infograph for it last semester and I was just using it again. Yeah. And I think that kind of relates to one of our other questions is like, how long does it take you to create a syllabus? And what you're saying about like, once you have that hack, like in an infograph or whatever for your students, then you can just reuse it over and over again. And so with that, I think that the answer to how long it might takes to create a syllabus depends on whether or not I've taught the class before, how many changes I'm making. Um, and I will say I change my, my syllabus every single semester in terms of like layout or tweaking it or adding things to it, even for classes that I've taught multiple semesters. Um, so it's never copy paste. There's always like minimal time would probably be, I don't know, like 45 minutes to an hour, like between semesters, right? So like from fall to spring, updating dates, times, stuff like that, making minimal changes is still running about an hour. Yeah. And I would say for me, like making my syllabus also means making the course schedule exactly. and making sure that the syllabus is reflecting the course schedule. And so that if it's a class I've taught once before, still takes like a minimum of five days um, of figuring out exactly how the, the schedule is going to work. And if my policies are reflecting those, those plans and vice versa, um, and making sure that I'm rereading with fresh eyes because I'll make all the changes and, but still know like you have to wait till tomorrow <laughs> to assess what you just wrote. Cause Again, it makes sense right now because I just wrote it. Yeah, and syllabus building takes thinking too. And I think that's where when you get really sort of like, I'm just going to reuse the same one over and over and not make any changes to it, you're losing some of that, that time of like, I need to think through these, how everything's working, how it's coming together, how it pairs up with the course schedule. Yeah. So what are your strategies for creating a course schedule? Okay, so if you have a Center for Teaching Excellence and they give you templates for your course schedule, those are the most helpful things ever mm -hmm. uh, because they put, you know, all the university sort of deadlines and, and need to know dates are there. Mm -hmm. If not, then you have to, you know, generate your own sort of outline. Uh, oh, and like, sorry, I'm just drifting. I'm thinking about like having to do that at Florida State, you know, <laughs> they did not give us templates. And so you had to like, print out the university's calendar and then map it all out on yours. And then you could get started on like your actual classes. Oh, nightmare. Anyway, <laughs> um, so tedious. So if there's a template that your university provides, send whoever's doing that a thank you email because it's so helpful and use that. And I work 
backwards. So I will go and put all my major assignments in and think about like, okay, how much time do we need between drafts? Where will peer review fall? Where will conferences fall? Have I given them enough time to do revisions between projects? So I start with major assignments, put input them, and then I work everything else around. So like in unit one, we need to go in this order because this is what makes sense for the major assessment in that, in that unit. And then homework is what I usually add last because that's the, you know, lowest stakes thing for me, right? Because mostly homework are discussion boards and, and reading assignments, Um, And so I'm just really figuring out like what complements what I'm teaching that week or what we're working on project wise that week. Um, Yeah, that was my follow up question for you with reading. Like, how do you decide how long to spend with a novel? Obviously, page length plays into that, but anything else? Yeah, I have gotten into the habit of dividing my classes into units. Um, I've almost always done that for literature classes. I've just really started doing that, um, for comp. So for me, it's where does this novel fall unit wise? And then what's realistic for the reading assignment? Because if it's a novel that I haven't taught before that I feel like it's going to be more difficult Then obviously I'll assign, I will assign fewer pages. So we'll take longer with that novel. So there's no, for me, there's no set. Like I won't assign, say like every night I'm going to assign 35 pages or 50 pages or whatever. Um, it's really about, okay. I think that, you know, Jasmine Ward salvage the bones is a text that they can read more quickly than Song of Solomon. And so we, I can assign more reading without it being unrealistic, like more pages. Um, And then in that, it, how does this fit into my units, right? What do you mean by units? um, Like, what are you using as for your units? And and so whatever theme or objectives, so I try to group text. So I don't do them in chronological order. And we've talked about this before, but based on like, what is, so if I'm grouping like the first two novels together in a unit, what are my objectives for that unit? What do I want them to walk away with? And so I've started doing this thing where um, for every unit I have at the, the, in the module before, like a um, overview So in this unit, we're going to focus on these three objectives. And then at at the end of that unit, I have a reflection where they write like a short discussion board post explaining um, like a a series of answering a series of questions that relate to those objectives. So if only two of my novels fall into unit one, cleanly, then we have to finish those in that, that unit's time. Whereas unit two might have three novels and we go through those a little bit quicker. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. So for your units, you said you have uh, course objectives. Are those more theme focused of like, we're going to be focusing on issues of class, uh, use of mythology, or uh, do you also have like 
skill-based objectives or is it a mix? Depends. So in intro to literature, I did, I paired themes and skills together. So like we started off with um, adaptation and collaboration, I think was the first unit. Uh, um, And so we talked about collaboration in like the novels and across the novels with their adaptations um, in film, but then also talked about collaboration in class and like good practices for that and how that works. Same with like, I've done that with like research. So if we're, re- if we're in a unit that's theory heavy, we're also talking about like critical reading skills and research skills. So I usually try to have like two objectives that are theme-based and then one that's like a, here's a skill we're working on. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think most literature classes tend to be organized around the individual novels. So I'm really interested in thinking about the units and and grouping the novels and working through that. I think you're giving me a lot to think about with that. And Um, I'm trying to get better about not organizing my class around the novels, because even when I did the units, I think I still was organizing around the novels first um, versus the objectives. And so remember, like we've talked about this so many times, but mm-hmm. trying to organize like from the, like starting with the objectives and then your major assessments and working backwards there. Mm-hmm. Um, the novels are what I love. And so that's what, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it's sort of what we've been culturally conditioned to think about what the English class is. Oh, you read the great novels and you walk around, walk away with all of this cultural capital. You're able to quote Shakespeare, reference Ulysses, know who Virginia Woolf is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, at least to me, one of the best things about an English major are the skills you learn about critical thinking, research, um, making connections, being able to thoughtfully approach other perspectives and cultures and ideas. And um, your students can read novels for the rest of their lives. So what are the skills you're bringing that beyond just reading these six to eight novels? So I think your, your approach really helps ground that. Well, so even though we're grounding that and we're getting away from the novels, why don't you tell me your favorite book to teach? Oh, you're going to laugh. I <laughs> won't laugh. It's Corrigadora. I won't laugh because I already knew the answer. <laughs> Gail Jones's Corrigadora, published 1975. I love. <laughs> uh, Tony Morrison was the editor. I love teaching this novel so much because to me it really encompasses all all what we just talked about in terms of bringing those skills to the the class but also my students hate the novel the first time they finished it the ending is very upsetting they come into class very mad (laughs) which I'm glad because it shows they're empathetic human beings um but then by the end of the semester even by the end of that first uh class we talk about it they start thinking through, well, you know what, this ending actually does make sense in in the overall understanding of the novel. It makes sense structurally, thematically. 
Um, it makes sense with like the techniques and the historical culture. And then by the end of the semester, they'll talk, they keep coming back to that novel. But it's so much fun to, I shouldn't say fun, but it's exciting to teach because you get to um, talk about form, you get to talk about content, you get to talk about um, a lot of comp complex themes, but the assignments that I pair with it, I, I really appreciate too. It's, it's the novel that we really talk about language and the role language plays in society um, as both a tool of oppression and a tool of liberation. So I love teaching that. The other book that I think I love teaching might be Passing at, uh, by Nella Larson, 1929. <laughs> um, and I think that's for somewhat similar reasons. The ending causes so much debate with students that it really is an opportunity to teach them about analysis, which we talked about earlier this season. And, and I talked about how I use Passing to teach analysis, um, but it's such an opportunity for them to build that skill set but they also just love reading it. So they come in ready, like that's often the book they cite as their favorite. And that sort of passion, shared passion in the classroom, I think creates the learning community that we tend to romanticize already in English classes. So that helps them feel like we're in a real English class right now, <laughs> um, which is nice. And they become much more supportive of each other. But what about you? Uh it's such a hard question because mm -hmm. uh, it depends on on the class I think. Uh, and like which Cormac McCarthy book you're reading at that time? <laughs> I wish everyone could see your face right now. <laughs> I can't remember if you've outed me um, and how I feel about Cormac McCarthy on that podcast but um, no I <laughs> uh, did not do not teach Cormac McCarthy. Um, anyway <sighs> I was thinking. So Eden, you can't even pick a favorite now. Only you wanna, like, you know, like bring me to a pinnacle of irritation. You can just bring up Cormac McCarthy or Tom Cruise. So now let me get back to where I was. If so one of my favorite books ever to teach was Long Division in Intro to Literature, because that book is like a puzzle. And I think students, it opens their eyes to investigating literature and investigating it without knowing where you're going to end up. Mm. And, you know, it, it's a book that it's weird. It has these moments that are very like emotionally charged, and, but also familiar, but strange at the same time right like you recognize all these sort of like integrations of media and stereotypes uh, but they're still very weird um and, and I keep saying weird because that's that's it's a brilliant book um and students respond really well to it they like it's a great book for intro to literature. It's a great book in general, but it's a really good book for getting students to think beyond like that, not to shit on AP literature and Lang, but like to think beyond like, here's figurative language, here's an alliteration, 
to this is an actual process of discovery and you can come up like you can develop and learn so many cool things from reading this novel um and I learn so much from them when we read it together um so yeah that's that's one of my favorite books for intro to lit I'm just diving into another question which will be apropos of nothing but how much personal stuff do you share in class? Maybe that's apropos of what's our favorite. Um, Cause I don't think, I can't think if I tell my students which texts are my favorite. I don't think I do, but you know, in general, what, what sort of personal stuff do you share? I don't think, like, I don't think I tell them, well, this book is my favorite because they're all my favorites. You know? <laughs> or like in terms of like to teach, right? Even if I don't like the book, which unless I was teaching Cormac McCarthy, I could be excited about anything we read in class. And so, yeah, they just think I'm like weird and excited all the time. I actually share a lot of personal stuff about my kids because it's important for me to normalize like that I'm a mom and also good at my job and a professional, but like that my boundaries are dictated by my children. So like if you email me at... 11 o'clock on Wednesday night, you need to wait to get a response because I'm in bed because I have these two humans that I have to like be able to get up and parent and like, I have to take care of myself. Like, you know, like I have to get sleep and do these things. And so I'm pretty open with them about that and open with them and personal when like my kids are sick or I need, I, you know, need to do a class online or bring my kid to class pre-COVID, like I don't bring them to class now, but you know, so I try to be like, I don't know if personal is the right word for that, but I do share that with my students because I want them to see me as someone who is doing a good job by them, um, teaching them things, is prepared, but also like that my role as a mom is really important to me. And you don't have to sacrifice parenthood to be a professional or vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably the biggest like personal part of myself that I share with my students. I don't share anything personal except for the fact that I have a dog and that's really just emotional bribery on my part of, let me show you this picture of my dog. Everything else, I constantly change my terms. Uh, like, like I'll tell a story about um, my partner, about my husband, about my boyfriend. I flip up like all of things constantly. So they're never quite sure what my personal life is. Uh-huh. Because I never want them to think they have a grasp of me. <laughs> I don't know why, except in terms of my bound. It's really um, because I don't want them to get comfortable projecting things onto me or the course based off of what they think they know about me. Um, And I want them to really focus on the materials, their own development and their peers. I want them to be like a, a supportive environment. I want them to feel supported by me. I want them to be able to trust me, but I don't want them to think they know me, if that makes sense. Um, and it's kind of a joke the way I do it. Like I tell them at the beginning of the semester that, you know, 10% of what I say is 
BS and it's up for, to them to figure out what it is. A lot of the BS is just like on my personal life where like, um, and even like things with my, my own interest and stuff, I'll just throw out things that like, I'm not interested in, but I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> so, so was, the one thing I'm always honest about is I do not like donuts because they'll bring you donuts sometimes when they have extras. And I always feel guilty saying no, but I do not like donuts. Don't offer them to me. Do not like donuts. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's, Yo, you've already gone down and look, you mentioned no. like, and you don't like donuts. Like I like donuts in the evening. They are a dessert, not a breakfast. Mm-hmm. They're also not something I can eat while teaching. It's, it's. That's fair. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you're wrong, um, but it's fine. I mean, I know I'm right and that's what matters. <laughs> So I feel like I should pick the next question as punishment for not liking donuts. <laughs> um, Wait. Oh, that's my punishment? I thought you were punishing yourself, but that works. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for you. I'm going to pick something, you know. Well, Margaret, do you want to talk about maybe the 4455 class load or any tips that you have for double slash multiple prep? Yeah. So I'll go with the teaching. So I'm teaching a five, five right now. Um, and I taught a five, five last year as well. It's comp classes, which I'm going to be honest from in my own personal experience, teaching comp takes more work for me than teaching literature only in terms of the constant feedback. Um, it takes more planning, I guess. Like um, with the literature class, um, it's a little bit just differently distributed. So I guess, I don't know if I should say it takes more work. It's just like a different kind of labor. Uh, comp classes are more time intensive labor for me personally mm-hmm. than literature. I agree with that. And it also might just be that literature is our wheelhouse. So we're more comfortable with a lot of it. So it takes less time for us to figure things out. I don't know. Um, But with the five, five, um, I have taught it both as a single prep and a double prep. And it is why this semester I had everything figured out a week in advance. So I could give myself time to one, double check it, but also I wanted everything to be uploaded exactly the same because I need to be consistent with them to make sure that nothing gets lost in the shuffle. So it takes a lot of upfront work. Um, And that way, my goal is the semester is almost autopilot in terms of, I know my lesson plans for every single day this semester. Mm-hmm. All my peer edit forms are already drafted and uploaded. Um, all the readings already uploaded, available, like assigned, all that sort of basic stuff. But like I, I have all my lectures written out and planned to make sure I'm delivering that same information. When it's a 2-2, I don't have to write my lectures ahead of time because there's just like less mental juggling of which class did I tell which Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I tell a, one class something one day, I can remember to tell the other one the next or whatever. I can't do that with a five, five. Um, so I draft my lectures. 
I don't necessarily read them straight off the page, but I do have them up and I kind of scroll along. I can think of it as an outline and it just helps um, make sure that each class is getting the information they need to succeed. Um, but what it also does is that I have all of that out of the way at the beginning of the semester so I can focus on responding to my students. So I no longer have to worry about what I'm bringing to the table. I can just respond to what they're bringing. Um, and it, it makes that a lot easier. And again, that's for a comm class. I have not taught a 5-5 literature load, but I imagine I would handle it somewhat similarly. Again, just to make sure that all of my classes are getting what they need. But um, I think I like, I, I like courses that are student focused. So being able to set everything up so that way my course can be as student focused as possible. Literature might be harder to do that though, now that I'm talking through it, because your students are gonna be bringing their own interpretations, which are going to open um, specific lines of inquiry and investigation and all of that in your individual classes. So things are gonna come up in one class that are like significant and they'll never be addressed in another just because of what the students are focusing on and talking about. Yeah, wow. that's, that's what I was thinking um, when you were talking is that discussions, like a literature class for me is so discussion driven that it really depends on where we take that discussion that day. And yeah. I was also thinking about the fact this is how we know we're a baby teacher still is that I have not taught two sections of the same literature class in the same semester. So, and the most I've done in one semester is three literature classes. And one is sort of like a cheat because it was where I was adjuncting and it was technically their comp, their second comp class, but it was an intro to literature. So they're private um, and they had a weird like comp setup, but they use an intro to literature textbook. And it was, you know, yeah, the things you were supposed to be doing made it more of a literature class than a comp class. Um, I didn't have any control over that. So that semester, I well, yeah. So that semester I was teaching three literature classes. I think it was in, no, it must've been women in lit and perspectives on the short story. And then that, which was an, again, intro to literature. Um, and so, you know, it was triple prep. But I don't know that I would love teaching the same lit, like two different sections of the same lit class. Because it would be so hard to yeah. like what you've said because, and, and maintain that sort of organic discussion. Yeah, my lit classes, I'm thinking about how they're discussion-based, but... I, I'm doing a lot of assigning. Like when we have like the entire class discussions, I already have the passage. We're I, I want us to uh, point out cause it's normally like a significant pa uh, passage that I'm like, we need to make sure we talk about this. And then in small groups, I tell them like, this is what your, your group's talking about. So there would be that sort of consistency. But again, students can take that wherever they want. Um, I can tell, tell a small group, you're going to be focusing on masculinity and how the author's mm -hmm. depicting it in this novel, what techniques they're using, how it responds to cultural norms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They 
uh, that, but they can pull out drastically, drastically different sections that would make it difficult where I know, and I think this is what you were talking about, like on some level, you're always going to be comparing those two classes. What did this one get versus what did this one get? And you're always going to be seeing the failings of like, oh, this class didn't get to do this. And that was so great. But on the other hand, I think it would also keep me fresher because I'm always responding to something new. So I can keep that level of excitement and not be like, oh yeah, that's exactly what so-and-so said in my earlier class. But, but it also would use a lot more brain power because you're constantly responding to something new. <laughs> so yeah. Oh uh, yeah. It would, I don't know if I have any advice because like you were saying too, baby teachers on that front, I don't know entirely how I would feel but at the end. But I think if you, I guess the advice is just the same as I had before, do as much work as you can ahead of the semester. So that way you can save your mental energy for your students and not for your prep. Um, if you can, especially if it's a class you've taught before, it's that much easier to get your prep out of the way, go ahead and do that because um, it just, it's, it, you got to save yourself as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. So with like saving yourself as much as you can, um, what do we think about how many office hours you should hold? Mm, I don't know if I have like a magic number for this. Cause I was telling you this before, this is like one of the things that actually gives me anxiety is trying to figure this out. So I, I am someone who would have this as a frequently asked question. <laughs> um, this semester I'm having um, one on each of the days that I teach. It's literally all I can fit with a five, five. And then I'm having three um, on, on an off day where um and so it's five hours total, but that might be more than necessary, but I, I like that. And I'm also someone who I've always had my office hours divided into two, um, where I call what some of them office hours, but then like I'll call um, the other group of hours, like something like writing workshop or drop-in something that feels more informal because I found that students think of office hours as kind of intimidating that they need to have a very specific question. They need to know exactly what they're going to say. But if I have something called like workshop, drop-in, whatever, they feel more comfortable coming to that with just like, I don't know why I'm struggling, but I feel like I'm struggling and I just need help, but I don't know what I need. Um, and so I try to always do that every semester. But what about you? So I think I use office hours to my advantage. Pre-COVID, um, I would schedule while, like while I was writing my dissertation more office hours because then I was like dead. Like I had to be in my office mm -hmm. and students weren't utilizing all that. Like they weren't utilizing all those hours, but I was there in case they wanted to drop in. Um, and so... I got a lot of work done during that time, just full disclosure. Um, whether I was like, sometimes I would use office hours to course prep or to grade and then do my other work outside of that. Um, but I do think that like somewhere 
between two and four hours is like the ideal for me, but also being open to making appointments. Hmm. Right. And so um, I like to have a set of time that they can just swing by or if it's online, which it, you know, with COVID where they can just drop in. Um, and I, I also took from you the workshop idea. And so like pre-COVID, I would go to a common space on campus, like the student union or whatever, and sit and do my workshop hour there outside of the office. So it was like less overwhelming. Yeah. Um, now I don't do that, but I'll do a workshop hour. Um, it's right now scheduled for like Thursday lunch hour um, and they can drop in. And then my office hours are each an hour and a half on Monday and Wednesday. And then they can, because those are gonna be online um, because of like COVID stuff, um, they'll make appointments for those times, but also just being open to making appointments outside of those times. Uh, yeah. And I would recommend like thinking about how many students you're going to have when picking your office hours and how you're going to distribute them. Um, because that's one reason, like I have five right now because I have, uh, I think 140 students. Yeah. And so thinking like, you know, midterms, end of the year, when they all drop in, like, am I going to be able to see them all, even if just like 5% of them show up. Right. But also, um, I, I really normally like doing the by appointments to make sure that I can see them all. I am not offering that this semester. Like I told them, if you can't meet during those office hours, we can try mm -hmm. to meet, but like, I'm not promising or by appointment because 140 is just too many to make that offer to. Yeah. Um, but said I am still conferencing with them. Right. We have our two conference weeks. I am looking forward to and treading it. But I think if um, you're someone that you do want your students to take advantage of office hours, trying to schedule your conference weeks earlier in the semester, because I always notice an uptick after conferences of them coming to see me. Yep, definitely. Um, and I think another piece of advice for this is just being willing to adjust mm -hmm. uh, because if, your office hours are filling up consistently, then you might need to add more. Um, but also it sucks to have office hours and have no students show up. Mm -hmm. You've designated that time. And so, yeah. So like, I think you can adjust in both ways. Like if you have five hours, but you're only seeing students for three hours, then make that adjustment. Well, I also like what you said, because it's true when you're working on something, office hours are sometimes the time when you get most of it done when students aren't showing up and not to say schedule your office hours when your students won't come, but definitely don't do that. Yeah. But think about when are you most productive? And I think that also will benefit your students. Like if you are fresher in the morning, having your office hours in the morning, when you can be get your, your stuff done, but also be a better instructor to your students. Great. Like, I think a lot of times, like, yes, 
first and foremost, you kind of have to work around your schedule, <laughs> but two, then think like, well, what kind of person am I? Am I a morning person? Having my office hours in the morning is going to be more useful to everyone. If I'm an evening person, having it after classes. Um, and maybe that's obvious, but I think for a while, like I kept, when I first started teaching, I was trying to go with like what I felt like the standard time to have office hours was like versus when was it best for me to have office hours and when could I be the best help um, with that, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so. Should we do like one or two more questions or should this be our final question? Well, I was going to ask you, do you want to choose one final question? Yeah, I don't know which one though. Ooh, we can end with some hot takes. And how do you handle the potential of your students lying to you? Oh, this one's come up. So I put that one on the list because I've seen it on Twitter being debated in terms of like, what if they're lying to you about COVID, right? And I'll give you my hot hot take. Like, I don't care. Like, it's not my job to police the morality of my students, right? Um, and like, I also don't want to be in a position of figuring out whether or not they're lying. Yeah. Um, and so like, for me, if a student says like, I have COVID, or I need to quarantine, like, okay, that I believe you blanket, you know, sort of thing. Because I think this, the sense is like, well, they're just gonna like, they're just gonna make it up and not do any of the work. But that's a thing we deal with all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, and so at the end of the day, I do think, you know, you have some sort of idea as to whether or not a student is taking advantage of you or not in terms of like being dishonest about their situation, but your policies can still stay the same. Does that make sense? You know, like, yeah, well, it's, it's a little bit like the risk reward for assuming your students are going to lie to you. Like what's the reward of making that assumption versus what's the risk. And to me, the risk far outweighs the reward. Like, okay, you catch your students lying and now you've proved that you're smarter than them or like you're onto them. Like, uh, versus I know multiple people who've had, deeply traumatic family and personal crises and have been like demanded to show proof or have been like penalized because there's just like the assumption that, you know, students are lying about that. And that's something that makes the classroom and a university overall unsafe to people where they're like, well, I'm not going to be supported. I'm going to be punished for being a human being. And that's not a risk I'm willing to take. Um, I think if your students don't want to do not, if they don't want to do the work, they're not going to do the work regardless. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't, I, I don't think anyone likes people treating them like they're stupid. And I think that's what like the fear of students lying comes down to that your students are going to treat you like you're stupid. Um, and that's irritating, but also like, I don't think it's the go-to for, I don't know. No, I, right. I, I don't think that students are generally making up like 
deaths in their family or sickness or like, and like, if they are, like, if there's a student doing that, they have to live with that. Like, it's eventually going to come back on Mm -hmm. them. And like, but I don't want to be the arbitrator of karma, right? Like, I don't want to be the person that's like holding their feet to the fire. Like the work will get done or it won't. And even in a situation like a global pandemic where I'm more inclined to give incompletes, the same still applies. It will either get done or it won't. Like, and you have to do the work to pass the class. Yeah. And I think there's also like, when students do lie, a good portion of them are lying because they can't tell you the real reason, or they might not know how, like sometimes students might make up that they're sick because they're struggling with mental health, or they might tell you that they have mental health concerns because that's become more predominant because they don't know how to tell you they have to work a double shift to be able to afford textbooks, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I I think it's just worth considering how do you draft policies that don't encourage your students to lie to you? Like I tell my students, like, if you aren't darn feeling well, don't come to class. I don't need a doctor's note. I don't need you to really even tell me, just make sure you're keeping up with the work as you can. You can always come to office hours and we can chat about it. Um, other semesters, like I have sort of like class note takers. So it's like, you just check the notes, keep up with the readings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or like I had no difference for my courses between excused and unexcused absences. Like it was like, take the absences when you need them, but just know if you go over this amount, you're going to have to come to office hours to come up with a game plan for finishing the semester. Because if you've missed more than six, let's say, um, you're going to have missed so much material that you might not be able to pass. Um, and like building it, like, I don't know. I feel like my assignments work as attendance. Yeah. Like if you're not keeping up with the work. It comes out in the assignments. Right. Um, so yeah, I think there's just something where you can build your syllabus where your students don't feel it's necessary to lie. Yeah. And also it's also not necessary to tell the truth in the sense of like, you don't have to share with me. Um, what's going on in your personal life. Yeah. And I think that sometimes there's this attitude that students should explain themselves to you. Um, And I don't agree with that. I don't think they should explain themselves or their financial situation or their mental health or their physical health or their relationship or environment at home. Like, I don't think they need to tell me those things. Yeah. Like, even if I know, like, we're talking a lot about like attendance and and thinking like more about assignments. Like one of my policies is that if you let me know ahead of time that you can't make a deadline, we'll work with an alternative. Don't let me know after the fact, because then my options are limited and what I can offer you. But if you let me know as soon, like soon as you can, we can figure something out. And obviously like, sometimes you have to let me know after the fact, like it's not, but I have that policy of like, I can work with an explanation. So if you can't meet a deadline, um, just give me a heads up and we can figure something out. Um, I just think it's sometimes people's policies set students up to lie. Mm -hmm. 
like no light work whatsoever, stuff like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And I'm not saying like make things harder for yourself. Like I don't accept all late work without questions, no matter what, because again, I have 140 students. Like I need to be able to grade things by the time grades are due. But um, I have found explaining to my students on the first day, my policies and why I have them, that they're not just me like arbitrarily finding ways to police them. Um, That opens a lot more conversations in terms of like them, you know, it's not like they're opting out just because they don't want to do the work. And so because they understand the policies, they know, because they know why I have my policies, they understand how to better follow, not just like the letter of the policies, but the spirit of it. So we can find those solutions when things come up. Right. Definitely. Um, So Margaret, what's your dream course? Oh, what is my dream course? Um, I totally forgot. Um, so I'm going to go with the one that I texted you the other day. I thought about, um, modernist in love. Okay. And, and cause I I was thinking the other day about how there's just like a lot of modernist works that are like written on their anniversaries with their like romantic partners or are just like you know, the fictionalized version of them falling in love with their partner, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought it would be a really fun class to teach because that's also a time of such social change. And so to look at the changing norms of gender roles, sexuality, um, partnerships, et cetera, and, and all of that, but look at the different forms it can take, um, so I would teach like, I mean, oh, I was about to say I would teach James Joyce's Ulysses, but that would take like half the semester alone. But anyways, I'd at least consider it or, or the Molly chapter in the end. Um, and then Virginia Woolf's Orlando, um, H.D. Simon. I, um, and I know I'm talking about the text, but I am trying to uh, think of the text in terms of the course objectives where you have poetry, you have of a more standard novel you have experimentalism um oh my gosh you could have Mina Loy in there oh (laughs) some manifesto-ish stuff um and really explore kind of those techniques and what it means to have this sort of fictionalized autobiography fictionalized biography like there's a lot to kind of the um performativity of literature and authorship that when they're, when they're um, writing these sorts of texts. And I think that would just be really interesting to explore. What is your dream course this week? Um, so also related to a text that you sent me, um, but the Nancy Drew text, uh, <laughs> the TikTok that you sent about Nancy Drew and how when the, the series, the publisher for the series changed, um, they did a lot of revisions on that series right um and so I'm thinking about like a class titled like censorship and revisions of feminist text Mm. and I don't have I'm I'm building objectives so I want to talk about um like how we define censorship and the relationship between women and censorship and um 
like how the standards are set for that, right? Because it's fine to consume women. We don't censor their bodies if the, if their bodies are for consumption, right? Specifically by them, like through the male gaze, but we censor their their power, right? So anytime mm-hmm. women are taking agency or power, then that's censored. Um, and so I think that that would be the objective of the class. And I would totally use the Nancy Drew like as a case study um, and maybe have them do some sort of like, depending on like what supplies, like can we find the... Mm-hmm books or not um could they do some sort of textual analysis and tracking to look like to put together like all the changes um in each version um and I think that they're like it with some research that's probably not the only um time that happens right no we actually talked about that in one of my film classes in undergrad we um because we had a unit on um basically women in the workforce and how that was depicted in film. And we were looking at like pre-World War II, World War II, post-World War II. And I remember there was one um, magazine serial we looked at that was for like the historical context. And it was about this serial about this um, young woman starting her career as a journalist. And she works her way up and the serial ended with her becoming the editor. They rebooted it in the 50s. So the original was in the 30s. They rebooted it. She's a journalist. She works her way up and marries the editor. Naturally. Yeah. I also want to talk about the other key part of this class would be to talk about the difference between like censorship and then sort of like feminist revisions mm. in the sense of like, um, like, re- like feminist revisions of like Greek mythology, right? Um, yeah. Sort or- of like the- like yeah. repression versus elevation. Yeah. Yeah. Like what do we repress? What do we elevate? Yeah. So yeah, that, that's my dream course. That sounds fun. Um, there's so much fun stuff you could do too in terms of like through the ages. It sounds like it would also work really well as a digital humanities course if you're tracking changes. Or also as... I think this could work as um, an intro to English studies class. Yeah. The things we talked about. Yeah. Well, I'll keep dreaming up courses until next time. All right. Bye.